Well, I have to just say there are times when we, um, we're in worship where my heart is stirred and I am deeply moved and I, I will say that was true as we worship today, but today I just sense this, sense our God, our Father, and Jesus and the Spirit was, was like smiling, loving, your your singing, your response, sitting up here and just, you know, it's it's not the full church like always, but it it had that sense of just um, your heart's worshiping God. So I, I just want you to know, um, I think our Father in heaven is 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 smiling at our hearts being open, and yet I know um, we are grieving through so much of the difficulty that we've been experiencing. Not just in our city, but throughout the nation, with the hatred and the violence, and and in the way um, the fabric of who we are is kind of being torn apart. You know, I had wanted to begin this message, and I I still will, because it's interesting to me that when I choose um, a passage of scripture. Especially when you're just going through the Bible, how interesting it is that when I prayed about after Exodus, what should we do? And I just had another one of those kind of times where God said, Acts, considering a number of things, but I felt the sense of we need to go through the early church. And, and I'm amazed at how what is in Acts applies so much to what we're experiencing and going through today within our own culture. In fact, this message that we were going to look at in Acts chapter 12, verses 19 through 30, um, has kind of three movements in it, three um, parts to it that we'll look at that each revolve around tough conversations or might be what I would call tough topics. And, and they don't jump out at you. Um, you have to read it in the context of what's been happening in Acts to, to truly get this. And so that will be my hope as we go through this. But I want you to think for just a moment... Uh, what are a couple really tough conversations that you've had, maybe in the last week or so? What, or, or maybe put it, to, what are some tough topics that, you know, when you engage in it, it's just, you know, you feel either defensive or you get riled up. And, and you may want to turn to someone next to you and just share with them one of those topics, okay? Just, um, and if it's a person you've had a, tough conversation with you can tell them first forgive ask for forgiveness but I just turn to someone and just say here's here's one really tough topic for me um, and then if you're alone sitting alone just on your fingers maybe just put a couple on it okay um, should hear a little buzz you know it just has to be a word or two so you don't need to share the, the whole topic um Okay, I, I, wanted, I wanted you to in, do that just to, to get in touch maybe with a few of the emotions and maybe some of the things that you feel when you talk about tough topics, tough conversations, because as we get into this passage of scripture looking at Acts chapter 12, and we'll look at these first two paragraphs, Acts chapter 12, um, verses 19 through the first few, uh, the very first thing that comes up is what I call the really tough topic of Christianity and culture. 
And we'll kind of look at Christianity in the next paragraph or two, and Christianity and, and what I call Christian representatives, and then the last one is the one that we all love, Christianity and money. Um, those are all tough topics. And they all kind of brought up in these passages of scripture. And it begins in verse 19, and it says, Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch of Syria. And I I just want to pause there for a second because Antioch of Syria is said that way because there are other Antiochs, Antioch being a well-known name of a person that it was used of some cities. This city was the capital of this area, Syria, which is a large area at one time when it was this large kingdom. It was the, the major city in that area. And to understand its significance, you need to know a little bit about this city. It is the third largest in the Roman then-known world, in, in the sense of Rome being about a million people. And a million people, for a city to get to be a million, was huge. I mean, London at one point wasn't until a few centuries ago a million people. So this is a huge metropolis. And then there was Alexandria, another city that was very large. That was the second. The third being Antioch. Antioch had some 500,000 people in it. And it was a cosmopolitan city with a lot of moral laxity. So it happens, whether it would be Corinth, wherever you bring these groups of people together, there were Greeks and Syrians and Phoenicians and Jews and Arabs and Persians and Egyptians and, yes, even Indians from the far east of Asia. We're all congregating in this city. And so he says, this is where it's at. And they preached the word of God but only to Jews. So, you know, we have been traveling through this, and you have this idea, it begins, and, and Jesus comes after the resurrection and says, I want the gospel, I want this gospel to, to go into lots of cultures. I want it to be in Jerusalem, then it goes to all Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. So every culture will be permeated and penetrated by this gospel. And so they begin to do that, and it really penetrates really well Jerusalem, because when the Pentecost comes, uh, this amazing thing happens that these people from all different places around the world are there for this festival of Pentecost, for this time of this religious um, ceremony, which they would call three times a year. This was one of them. They came together, and when they were there, the Spirit of God came upon them, and one thing that was amazing that happened is they went out and they started to speak. People who didn't know these languages were speaking all the languages of the people there, and they, in those languages, were praising God for the miraculous words, obviously one would be the death and resurrection of Jesus. And all these people then went back to their places where they were living, and yet the gospel continued in Jerusalem, and it was going primarily to the Jews, so we had read that it went to Samaria, and that was okay, they were kind of half Jews, that was not too bad, and then it went to a guy who was on his way back to Ethiopia, and that was not all bad, because he was a God-fearer wanting to be a Jew, he actually had been in Jerusalem at one of the festivals, and so he was going back. And then it happened, as we said a few weeks ago, to Cornelius. And, and he is a Roman of Romans. He is the most far out to the, to the, the, I mean, if you're talking about a Gentile who will not receive the gospel according to Jude, that was the guy. He's a centurion. He's a Roman soldier. He's in a, of the Italian army. He's their Navy SEAL. And so it goes out to all these people, but it's only being really told to the Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene, they did something maybe they shouldn't have done, but they went and began to preach to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. 
And the power of the Lord, this is in the New Living Translation, if you look at the, the actual Greek, it says the hand of the Lord. You see the armor of the Lord, the hand of the Lord. It's this idea that it wasn't just a message that went, but the message came with power. There were signs, wonders, and miracles. It's the way God moves into communities, into people, when he's doing something that he's getting their attention, they're coming alive to him. It seems like the supernatural world just penetrates those who have faith. And the hand of the Lord, power of the Lord was with them. And a large number of the Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. And when the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord, to the, to the Lord Jesus. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, strong in faith. And many people were brought to the Lord. These two paragraphs kind of define, and I'm going to spend a bulk of the time on this, and then we'll go to those next two. They define a topic of conversation that was very, very difficult in the early church. It divided. It divided Jewish believers And it was this whole idea of Christianity and culture. Christ, and how does Christ mix into culture? And our concern so often, when you've had Christianity um, within your culture for a long time, the concern of the church tends to be so often, um, it moves to this place of God, we need to make sure that in, in no way does our culture compromise our Christian faith, which is really important. But at the same time, what happens so often when, when you have a, a culture that has been permeated by the gospel over a long time, you then begin to get a cultural kind of Christianity. And, and those who may even be saying, don't let the culture permeate it, end up not even realizing that a whole lot of culture has already permeated them in ways they're not aware of. Which is so important for why we look at this passage of Scripture. Because implicit in these two paragraphs and throughout the whole, first Acts 1 through 15, which then is the spread of the gospel after that through all these different cultures, the key question is how do the teachings of Christ enter a culture and what do we need to know about our culture and the teachings of Christ? And so I'm going to ask you to kind of um, stay with me because some of this will be just some teaching, so you're going to have to think. You can't be lazy looking for stories and illustrations, okay, for a moment. Um, the gospel mixing in with other cultures and beginning to in this passage of scripture delineate what is Jewish Old Testament covenant truth versus what is the message of Christ the purpose of it coming was that Jesus would allow for this message to become universal to enter into every culture it leads us to what is in Acts 15, where the church and the Council of Jerusalem comes together with the purpose of discussing and then debating and in the end of it, making a decision around a very tough topic. How does Christ mix with other cultures? And what happens is, if you look at this as we go through Acts, every church that Paul begins to plant, as we go through later, you'll see hard on his heels are a group of people called Judaizers who are coming along after every time he just brings the undiluted gospel to these 
Gentiles and, and they accept Christ for who he is, they come along and say, no, but that's not enough. And they bring some what you would call Old Testament and even cultural things that God meant for a history for a time in a context and they brought them into that place. And so they would come in and say, no, you need to be circumcised. You need these dietary laws. You need this, you need this, you need this. And Paul was saying, no, it's just the gospel plus nothing. There are all sorts of things in our own culture that I could just raise and you would go, yeah, that's a tough topic, right? I'll just raise some Christianity and politics today. Christian nationalism. Even though evangelical, the word evangelical has a social definition, it has a demographic definition, or it may be where some people live. It also has what I would call a political definition. And then the church tries to have a theological definition. Or, or take things like QAnon, conspiracy theories. Or take Christianity and another type of sexuality. And, and you have a whole group of people who were raised in the church who are now talking about a purity culture that had a, a wounding effect on them. Or you go to the other side and there are people who are LGBTQ plus and, and they are seeking to work out things. And how does Christianity mix with that? Because it's one of these things that creates lots of controversy. Christianity and racism. What about reparations? Is there such a thing as white privilege? Is there a caste system in our country similar to what you might find in India? And, 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 and what about police brutality? I mean, honestly, every time I've been preaching through the last number of months, I will have someone who will react to something that I said. And, and that's okay. That's really fine because we are really, we're learning to be people of God who can go and disagree and stay in relationship even though we may not agree on everything. And so Christianity, whatever you want to name it, you put it with it. What I want to really do in this part, when we look at this passage of scripture, where, where you start to see they're being called Christians for the first time, which means they weren't called Jesians or, 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 or uh, Jesus of Nazareth people. They were called Christians, which means they were people who saw a Messiah, one who was an anointed one who entered into history and takes this Greek word Christ, which means Messiah, and applies it with this I-N-A-S, which is kind of a Latin derivative, which we say Christ once, which really means just you're of Christ. They are of the Messiah. These are the people who are going around and they're making a name for themselves. And they're making a name for themselves because this Jesus is starting to penetrate into all these different cultures. I I have to give credit to first a friend who gave me uh, a message by Tim Keller. And so I need to give credit also then to Tim Keller. Because what I'm going to share with you I think is really critically important. And Tim Keller talks about it. And he, he actually refers to a good part of it. Uh, to a guy who is a um, professor at Yale Divinity School. His name is Laman Sine, who writes about this. And I, man, when I heard it, I said, this makes great sense. You see, the gospel and the kingdom of God, when it comes into a culture, doesn't obliterate this culture, doesn't steamroll over it in, in, in and I'll kind of go through this and explain it. Christianity does not cancel culture when rightly interpreted, rightly proclaimed, and rightly lived. The gospel and the kingdom of God, this idea of the kingdom of God, which is we're living in now, but yet we'll fully come someday. We bring heaven to earth like Jesus called us to pray, and yet someday we'll be in the presence of God if we desire to be in his presence even now. 
And what happens when the kingdom of God comes, it actually enlivens the best of culture, lifts us out of culture to a degree, and yet at the same time, it um, reveals the worst of culture. God deliberately, when he um, had the gospel come out, he made sure that no culture would have precedence over another culture. There's no culture where someone can say, that's the original culture. The gospel came through the Jewish culture, but its design was universal. So that's why at Pentecost, is such an interesting thing. These people come in, and they all have different languages, and he reverses what happens in Babylon when people were confused in different languages. Here he, through one language of the Spirit, speaks in people's different languages, and he draws them together, and they go back into their cultures. It's, it's the statement of, look, at, we're not bringing a Jewish Christianity, we're bringing a Christian Christianity to all these cultures. And, and here's what this really means. And here's where Laman Sine, um, who teaches again at Yale Divinity School, and he's an African professor of missions. He's written a couple books. One of them is called, um, and they're, they're important books, so Translating the message, and the other one is called Whose Religion is Christianity? And in his book, Translating the Message, he points out something that is pretty well known. He says, Muslims will tell you that the Quran can't be translated. And you might be thinking, well, wait a second, I've gone to a bookstore, I've seen English Qurans, or I've read one before. That's true. But he goes on to say that if you read the Quran in the English, you will find often in a cover page or anywhere it's been kind of in another language, you'll find in the cover page that it will tell you that this is not really the Quran. It is an English explanation of the Quran, and that's an important point. And you might say, well, why is that? Because Sinead, he points out, and I've got to tell you, remember, he was a Muslim who became a Christian and he's pretty well aware of this. He says, as far as Muslims are concerned, God speaks Arabic. The original revelation was in Arabic. The original communication, then, of Islam to the world was in Arabic. Therefore, if you want God's word, you must read it and hear it in Arabic. If you have it in Chinese or English or Spanish, it isn't the word of God. But when you come to Christianity, it's totally different. We do believe the word of God can be translated. And then if you do have it in Chinese or English or Spanish, it is the word of God. Now, Swedes may contest this when you think about it being translated to the Norwegian language. They might not agree. but, But I have to say, even in Norwegian, it's the word of God. But there's a lot more to it than that. Let me continue with what Sine says. He says, when it comes to Islam, it's a unified, they call it a unified Islamic culture. There is an Arabic language and an Arabic culture so that wherever you are, any place where Islam is precedent, takes precedence in a culture, it actually, in a sense, takes a culture and makes it unified with all other Islamic cultures. That's the primary, that's the culture. 
And there is a unified worldwide Islamic culture, and it becomes the predominant culture. He goes on to say, this is not true for Christianity. And because of Pentecost and what we read here in the book of Acts, he says, in fact, Christianity is the most culturally diverse religion on the face of the earth. It takes radically different forms in different cultures. Christianity, because of Pentecost and because of what we read through the book of Acts, there is no one language. There is no one culture and there is no right culture. And this is very important. Therefore, when you look at this, Christianity reveals the kingdom of God, which comes into every culture and in it renews every culture. And at the same time, it honors culture and its differences. So if you're a Chinese, you become a Christian, you're in a sense lifted it out of culture just a little bit. Or if you're African, you become lifted out of that culture just a little bit. Because the gospel is this powerful message that goes and tells people this very truth. It tells about a man who died for his enemy. And it tells you that he did so by giving up power, by giving up riches, by giving up the things that he could hold on to in order to save us. And then he calls all of us as a result of that whatever culture we're in, as it lifts us a little bit out of that culture, and yet at the same time judges that culture, it calls us to this place where we are called to love God and love one another. That's the power of the gospel. And Sine, I, I, I love it, he says, and when you become a Christian, it takes you a little bit out of your culture, because every culture to some degree is judged by the, the gospel, and as A Christian, you are given a perspective to view both the good and the bad of your culture. You begin to see the excesses. You can see the imbalances in your culture. You begin to see the God substitutes. But this also you see. You can see the beauty of the culture that God intended through that people group. You can also see the diversity of that culture that God didn't want to stamp out through the gospel. And he says if you're an African, you become a Christian, you don't become a European. You don't become a Jewish Christian. You become an African Christian or a Chinese Christian. You become a a, a Korean Christian. You still are in your culture, but Christianity leaves you there and doesn't steamroll those diverse things within your culture. And this is really important. This is what happened at Pentecost. This is what we read when we read through the book of Acts. It's really important and an important thing for us to grasp. In this passage, as we speak about Christianity and culture, you need to understand, and I want you to have confidence in this conversation around Christianity and culture, that God refused one culture or one language to be predominant in Christianity. There's some huge implications about that. Right? What's really important to recognize is that there will be some diversity and we have to um, not only honor that, but we see the beauty in it. It calls us to recognize sometimes when you have a culture that has grown a long time with Christianity, just like a Jewish culture as it was birthing this Christian culture had difficulty extricating or exegeting what is really Christian versus what is their culture, you find that it will be difficult. So we will have trouble if we've been a European and and what is really of culture and what is of God. And that's an incredibly important question that when it comes to Acts 15, the Spirit of God is mightily at work directing this. You saw it in Peter's life, and I, I gotta be careful because I'm gonna go too long here. So, um, let me give you an example. 
Sine gives this example. He says, take secularism. It's, it's really a, a faith. In, in our culture today, to be secular is kind of a faith. And, and so uh, Sine, I think, um, does this well because he, he uses his own African background. He says, think about what it means to be an African. He says, if you're African, the core of being an African is this understanding that the world is spiritually alive. They come from a continent, from a place, the world is spiritually alive. You believe in spirits everywhere. There are good spirits and evil spirits. And, and, and because the world is supernaturally and spiritually alive, you come out of that context. But if you come, he says, like I did to, to Harvard, and, or you go to a school like the U of M or to Stanford or any of these different places who are very much secular in their belief system, he says what you'll find is that what they're going to do is they, they will want to celebrate your diversity. Those things, things like, I love your dress. I like some of the food you eat. I like your music to a degree. But then they're going to tell you this. There are no such things as miracles. There are not evil spirits or good spirits. Everything has some kind of scientific explanation. And they will totally, he says, flatten your Africanism, while telling you that they love your food. (laughs) And they'll destroy your culture. They'll celebrate part of it, but they'll reject the other part of it. Sine says this, and I think this is really powerful. Christianity won't do that. Christianity will affirm your culture. Christianity helped Africans become renewed Africans Africans will see the world as they do with spirits, he goes on to explain. They see it as spiritually alive. Christianity accepts the reality of the spirit world, but removes the tendency, this is important, removes the tendency in African cultures towards superstition and violence because it shows Christ who is the victor over evil spirits. And more than that, he says, as the victor over evil spirits, he shows his victory came through love and serving and not through hate and violence. And so separates this, honoring the culture, but also removing that which creates such pain and division and hurt. Christianity comes and renews you as an African, but leaves you as an African And you can go through every culture and do the same thing. It pulls out the excesses or the imbalances. And in Christ, this is what he says, I am what I am, whether Chinese, African, European, or Hispanic. So what does this mean? It means that we have to be really careful, church, when we start to talk about the message of Christianity and we need to be able to, with the Holy Spirit, exegete what is cultural and what isn't. It means this, that when there are things when, in our culture, it's very important, your, our way or our music, our art, our language, or whatever it is that we proclaim, we do not see it as superior. And we need to know that more and more as more of other cultures continue to enter into our city and into our lives. It means recognizing differences like like in cultures, this isn't right or wrong, time and punctuality. I was down in Florida and worked down in Miami area for a long time. Being a good Midwestern, on-the-clock guy, I would set meetings at 6.30 and they would show up at 7.10 and I would be like, what? When they would have meetings like this, the first 20 or more minutes were just people socializing. That was important. Sometimes we lose that, Right? 
There's all kinds of ways. You could talk about it, um, individual and corporate social structures, understandings of how you argue and reason. There's things the way you display your emotions or don't display your emotions. There's all kinds of ways that each of these cultures bring some beauty that allow for God to create a diversity of people with regard to their distinctives. If you want to read more about it, John Orberg has a great book that talks about how Christ... Um, came and with this universal gospel penetrated cultures. It's called, Who is This Man Jesus? Enough with that, because I've got to get on to these next two things very quickly, and I'm hardly going to say anything about Christian and Christian representatives, but there's a lot of good things to say here, because it's all about how we do converse with people who we may not agree with. I could bring up a, a number of names around this, um, names like um, James Dobson, some of you who might be familiar. I remember when I went to um, Colorado Springs, headquarters of James Dobson. It was about 15 years ago, I think it was. And people had all these James Dobson stickers on their car bumpers. And, and I was looking, finally I looked closely at it. It says, it says, focus on your, and then had a little D with a bunch of symbols. And then you focus on your own D family, which in PG is focus on your own darn family. Um, obviously people didn't like him. I can give you a bunch of names and we would, in this church, split according to who we think is kosher and who isn't. Franklin Graham, Beth Moore, Bill Johnson, Jenny Allen, John MacArthur, Joyce Meyer, T.G. Jakes. The reason I say this is look at verses 25 through 26 in chapter 11. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. In parentheses, it was at Antioch where they first called Christians. Now, I want to share with you, when you take this passage of scripture, you read through it too quickly and you do not catch what's going on. When they heard the name Saul, I can tell you, the people who knew Saul were going, don't bring that guy. Please don't bring that guy. Because if you look at his, his, his story, it starts out and he's standing over Stephen in chapter eight, um, 7 and 8 of, of, of Acts and he's stoning, he's, he's giving um, a, a affirmation and giving approval to the stoning of Stephen. And then what happens next is you see him. It says actually in the Greek, he's, he's breathing murderous threats. He's pulling people out of their homes. It'd be like he's coming to your home and he's finding people who are Christ followers and he's throwing them into jail. And then the next thing you see is as he's persecuting them, he's going on his way to persecute someone. He has this incredible dramatic conversion. And we're told that as soon as he lost, you know, he lost his sight. And as soon as he got it back, he went out and started preaching. He was so effective. He had outdebated everybody. And in out debating everybody, he would win all kinds of arguments. But he'd win the battle of the argument, but he'd lose the war of the heart. So finally, they're at this point, and they're uh, you know they're basically um, the church is is chaotic because of what Paul's doing. There's all kinds of things going on where there's people who have anger and there's hatred and there's confusion and there's fear. All this is going on. And I love this in chapter 11, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says that they they took Paul and, and it says they took him and they sent him back home to a place where he lived, Tarsus, which is far away from this community where he was creating all this in Palestine. And the verse says, now the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. Now, it's been 14 years, 14 years. Imagine when Barnabas says, this guy Saul, we need him. He is scripturally grounded, and yet he's also had the time to be tempered, to be spiritually sensitive. 
we need him to come to this place in this culture to help us be able to extract that which is Jewish from that which is Christianity and at the same time to be able to know what is culturally of this community that shouldn't be a part of the gospel. And and I want to share with you that Barnabas is probably one of the guys who should get more praise in the Bible. If you put him on the top five, he needs to be right up there in the top five of the heroes of the New Testament. Because he brought this guy, Saul, who ended up doing this. Okay, enough with that. Uh, What I wanted to say in the conversation, what's so cool is they gave him a second chance. When I was reading through this, I go, you know, we're in conversation with people. We represent Christ. And when you talk about other representatives of Christ, you, you don't have to condone it. You don't have to agree with it. You can, you can actually say, this is what I don't agree with, but how do you talk about them? What does love look like in that? You're displaying Jesus. Is, is, the way you talk about some of the people that you think are idiots, how do you speak about it? The last thing is this, church and money. Because a lot of you, if you read this passage of scripture here, let me get caught up on my notes. Where am I? Okay, I should be somewhere over here. Okay. Um, as, as we read this passage of scripture, you have Christianity and money. And, and it's really funny because this is what a lot of people say. All the church ever does is talk about money, right? Tired of the church talking about money. Christianity and money. Jesus, though, if he was here, the topic of money, he spoke more about that than he talked about faith and prayer combined. In fact, 11 of his 40 parables, which would be about 25%, were about money. And if I was to follow the teaching plan of Jesus, every fourth Sunday we would have a message on money. Okay. During this time, some prophets traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them was named Agabus, stood up in front of the meetings, predicted there would be a great famine in the time of Claudius. I'm just going to make it quick. Claudius, poor guy, if he was a, a voting, if he was being voted on for a position, he'd never be reelected because he had worldwide famines in his first, second, fourth, ninth, and eleventh years. How would you like that? That guy, and we're not having him back. Anyway, um, he can't help it. He's a Caesar. So the believers in Antioch decided to send relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea, everyone giving as much as they could. And then they did this, entrusting their gifts to Barnabas and to Saul. There's a need. Money needed to fill it. They realized their spiritual blessings were from this church, and so they gave back material blessings because where you are being spiritually fed, you should be materially giving something to support it and help it grow. Okay? So some of you who aren't and you've been enjoying the spiritual benefits, I just encourage you to do so. I'm going to ask them. Uh, one of our uh, members who's served in a number of different ways, Bob Kleinschmidt, to give kind of a Zoom illustration. You know, I've looked at tithing over the years and giving. Um, and I have felt an obligation towards it, but I had a real turning point um, in my giving life, if I can call it that. Um, back uh, probably over 25 years ago, where I was involved, uh, was tithing to our church and um, was involved with another parachurch organization that had a capital call for, for a new building. And um, the Lord put a number on my heart, and I'm telling myself, I can't afford that. And, um, you know, prayed about it some more and it kept coming back that no, I needed to give that amount. And 
I realized I wasn't, uh, that would put me in a, a net negative for the year if I looked at my budget, yeah. um, which uh, those who know me, uh, I kind of watch those things closely. But um, in the end, I ended up taking these, these monies out of savings and uh, gave them and felt good about it but still didn't quite know how the Lord would provide, um, you know, living on, uh, you know, not growing savings and tithing and doing all of the above. Um, but little to my knowledge, um, uh, about two weeks later, I got called into my boss's office and I'd been working on a, a job. Uh, well, actually I was kind of doing two jobs for a while up in Canada and down here in the U S. And so it'd been, putting in some extra time, but he out of the blue, which is not normal uh, from where I was and it wasn't normal bonus time. He handed me a check and it was for the exact amount of that gift. That shocked me. It, it, it just, it just reaffirmed instantly when I saw that number that uh, God was in this and uh, that when he had given me, um, an urging or a nudging to give this certain number he was going to provide. And in this case, it was quite direct. And that has changed my giving ever since then of really listening. Uh, things come across my path. Um, I pray about it. And the Holy Spirit gives me a number hmm. if I'm supposed to be giving to that. And um, I've tried to make a practice of always following that. Yeah. And uh, again, that this was 20, 25 years ago, um, just really changed uh, my view of tithing and gifting yeah. and that God truly does provide. You know what? I think one of the things that I learned from that is um, it's not, you know, God wants us to be faithful stewards in, in budgets and live within our means. But one of the things I learned from that, too, is um, God wants to give us, not according to our ability, we don't look at our own checkbook, we don't look at our wallet, we don't look what's in our account, so to speak, we look to him and say, God, what are you asking me to give in that? And then um, live within that, that, in, that, that, that area. And then he, he actually loves to help you become a giver if you want to. I've asked Mike to come, and it's 11.03, and I didn't budget well, obviously, this time. Um, if you need to go, please feel free. Those of you on live stream, you don't have to go anywhere, Okay. <laughs> You're sitting in bed or on the couch right now, okay? I'm asking you to tune in for a few more minutes. We were going to do a Q&A, but I'm going to do a Q&A with you, if that's okay. One of the things we don't do very often here is talk about money. We probably do it about five times a year. We'll come and say, here's where things are at. It's kind of what you do in your own home, hopefully, once in a while. You sit down and go, here's where things are at. So, Mike, um, we don't do this often, so would you kind of share with us just where we're at right now as we're about, what, two and a half months before the end of our church fiscal year? Yep. We're in our last quarter. And so um, we have, just like your home, as Kevin mentioned, just like your home budget, we have a number that's coming in, the amount of money you're making and the amount of money you're spending. And so as we share, it's always a tricky point in, in time to say, okay, as of today, this is where we're at. And so we, on the money coming in, we look at what God's leading us for a budget and what we feel like is appropriate and uh, guided by him. And then we look at the historical giving of the congregation. 
And so some months we expect more, like in December and in June, because that's the end of the calendar year, end of the budget year. Um, but other months, like April, it's a little trickier. Uh, so we are $117,000 behind right now in budgeted giving. So the anticipated money that's coming in. The good news is we also have some control over the money going out. And so we are 75000 in less than we had anticipated. So effectively, we're about $40,000 short of giving um, going into, into the last quarter of the year. Now, depending on how you want to look at that number, if you, I would prefer you look at the, we're 117 short. That's just the reality. It's, it's better in my life. Um, because what happens if, if we, our goal obviously would be to end better than zero. Um, and we had more money coming in than going out, just as in any budget. Um, and that was the challenge um, even that Bob was sharing, that, wait a minute, if I give this much, it goes the other way. Um, but if we end up to the plus in amount of in saving, spending less than we bring in, all of that goes to things like debt reduction. Uh, the example I give is uh, regularly is the lights in here uh, need to be fixed, replaced, upgraded. And that was about $60,000 a couple of years ago. We decided when we were redoing this room, we didn't have the budget for that, so we waited. Those haven't been fixed. They don't didn't get better. Um, and so, you know, that money will go towards that. So as you hear me share or whoever share, we're about $117,000 behind right now going into the last quarter. We're also 75-ish to the good, and so we're about 40000 short in the, in the net there. So in essence, what I'd like to say is we would love to make – the income goal we set, because that was what we set for the coming year vision-wise. It's really important. We've been in a place where God's gifted us and allowed for this. There are things that we need to do, so we would love for you to think about that. Um, there are some non-glamorous things that we give to, just keeping the lights on, the heating going, uh, air conditioning, floors clean. We need your help in, in that part of it. Uh, but Mike, um, we are talking about people receiving spiritual blessing and giving material blessing back. But we also have a lot of things that we're making a difference in other people's lives. It may not be your own spiritual life. What are some of those? For sure. The two that I'm most excited about um, right now have to do with the Chinese ministry. And they're not great, big, huge budget outlays, but they're um, fun for me. Um, So Camp Shamana is a free church camp up by um, Brainerd, Motley area. And lots of youth go there. We send our youth group most years. Lots of your families have been there and have enjoyed that. Well, this year, the Chinese group from our church went... Um, to Shamanah for the first time. And basically, we're an opportunity to go to Camp Shamanah and sitting in a camp and learning about Jesus is really putting yourself in a position to be touched by God. Now, they paid for some of that money, but we subsidized that to make encourage them to go and make it possible, gave some scholarships and that kind of thing. It was a fabulous weekend for them. Then we got to um, Easter Saturday, the Saturday before Easter. The Chinese group again got together and they had the traditional Easter celebration with pizza and games on the lobby. <laughs> We love their culture. No. We do. (laughs) And so we, um, sorry, that screwed up all my thoughts. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, Go on. So they came and had some pizza, and we subsidized that. Yes. We just, it's an opportunity for them to experience community. And we have lots of those kind of things coming up um, that we're excited about in the summer, but there's just a few of those things that say, all we're doing is saying, we ask you to pray and see, just like Bob did, what God is leading you to do. And some of you will hear numbers in specific directions. Others of you, like me, are less that way. And so for me, I look at percentages. 
It's easy. I'm either given 1%, I can jump to 2. I'm given 8%, I can go to 10. If I'm given 10%, maybe God is calling me to give more than my 10%. All of those things, all we're doing is saying, here's the need. We're asking you to to, uh, ask God for direction because it does things like that. And if we're living in a culture that has significant Chinese hate right now and violence, and instead we're saying, no, we're subsidizing groups to go experience God, to eat pizza at a church, because this is new and exciting and opportunity for us to tell them about Jesus, then I'm in. So you just get a couple things. That was really one. I've got 15 that I would like to share with you. I'm just kidding. Um, There are so many things I'm just so excited about. So... God is doing some incredibly cool things. Let me just, you know, you kind of said the challenge in some ways. I really want you to pray. And those of you still on live stream, thank you. Um, We just are grateful for your gifts. We just want you to know how important that is to running the ministry. Um, Just like you would be if you're running a business. It's kind of go, okay, you don't have to worry about certain things. Like as a senior pastor or pastors, we have to even give more energy into that. So as God is leading, if you've never given before, I really challenge you to think about saying, okay, what does it look like? I mean, the Bible talks about a tithe, 10%, and some people get really nervous when you say that if you've never done anything before. Um, It's amazing to me, stories of how God really comes in and, and supports that. But Jesus never talked about a tithe. He just said, be generous. And so I'm just asking you as God kind of lays it in your heart um, for however the Lord leads to um, to help in, in this as we fulfill the vision that we have to really um, serve this area, bring the gospel to this community in a way that makes a difference. So thank you for your patience, for going over. We do a and a Sometimes we didn't really do that. Did you have any last words you wanted to say? Yeah, my only thing is it's, it's also about perspective. Because generosity is a matter of, okay, whose who's money is this? And I think biblically there's an argument that says it's God's money that he has blessed me with. All I'm doing is partnering with God. And so we, again, back to Kevin's culture thing, we, um, or his culture point. Uh, <laughs> his culture thing. His culture thing. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Sorry. <laughs> How about back to the Bible's yes, culture thing? There we the go. Bible culture. Um, <laughs> the Bible talks a ton about generosity. And so I, as I was thinking about this, it reminded me of, I'm not a huge country music fan, but there's a country music song that um, is about money can't buy me happiness, but it'll buy me a boat. And it'll buy me a truck to pull that boat, and it'll drive me a Yeti cooler to put in that boat. And get you to a place you want to go. Yeah, anyway. And so often that's our perspective, is it's, this is mine. I have it. And so what I would really like is a boat. And at some point, we have to ask, is that really what God's intention is? And I don't care if you get a boat. Invite me onto your boat. It'll be great. <laughs> so that's simply one little thing, but it's a, it's a generosity perspective. And even you have stories of a widow came and gave this little widow's mite that was worthless. And Jesus says, that's a greater sacrifice than, than the other people who are throwing in big money so that people could see them. Yep. So generosity does not mean... Um, million, although we would love those checks. Um, Most of our money comes in with $1,000, $2,000, $5,000. And we will do a, we have a donor that's set forward with a matching gift in May um, because that really works well for us. And so you'll hear more about that as well. But we have some opportunities coming up here to just finish the year strong. Yeah, thanks. Let's stand together, would you? Um, you've been very gracious and kind to go to 11.11, usually try and end right at 11. Those of you on live stream, 
bless you. Thanks for being with us. God, we just praise you and thank you. We lift your name up. We ask that you would be in our midst in this city. We pray for the judge. We pray for the jury. We pray for um, all people involved in this, God. We just pray that you, the truth would come through and grace would be present and that God, you would, um, that you would keep evil um, and, and hold it back. We are, we are right now a national spotlight. We would pray it wouldn't be on our evil, but it would be on your good. We do pray that, God, for justice. And we do pray, Lord Jesus, for peace. And we pray for your beauty to once again show up in our cities and our nations. That we would be people that love you and love one another. In Christ's name. Amen. God bless you.